Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Today's bonus episode is a listener request from the ladies over at Pink Collar Podcast, Rachel and Natalie. Thank you guys for requesting this case. If you want more information about the case of Michael Frankie, I recommend checking out the Murdered in Oregon podcast on the iHeartRadio network. But without further ado, Let's get into this case. This murder happened over 30 years ago, but it remains unsolved. Although a man named Frank Gable spent almost that entire time locked away for the murder, despite strong evidence that he didn't commit the crime. Michael Frankie's murder is on the short list of Oregon's most infamous murder cases. Frankie was a native of Kansas City, Missouri, and attended the University of Virginia Law School before graduating in 1971. He was admitted to the Virginia Bar and served as a Judge Advocate General, or JAG, in the U.S. Navy before being admitted to the New Mexico Bar in 1975. Frankie was an Assistant Attorney General and Counsel to the New Mexico Corrections Department until 1980. He then served as a judge for the First District Court in Santa Fe until 1983, when he became the director of the New Mexico Corrections Department. In May 1987, Frankie was tapped by Oregon Governor Neil Goldschmidt to be the new director of Oregon's prison system. Goldschmidt was impressed with the prison reform work that Frankie had done in New Mexico 
and he wanted Frankie to do the same for Oregon. At the time of his murder, Frankie had been in his position as director for almost two years. Beginning in 1988, the state's prison population was growing. In January of 1989, Frankie was under some scrutiny for his expenditures and budget overruns. On the night of January 17, 1989, Frankie attended his regular Tuesday meeting of directors at 5.30 p.m. This meeting was held in what is referred to as the Dome Building, which is the headquarter office of the Oregon Department of Corrections in Salem. At 6.30, an unknown man wearing a pinstripe suit was seen inside the Dome Building. At 6.45, Frankie was seen alive for the last time. He told his co-worker, Dave Colley, that he was going to his office to call his wife. Cell phones weren't a thing at this time, so it makes sense that Frankie would have to go to his office to call someone. At 7 p.m., the building's custodian, Wayne Hunsacker, left the dome building and saw two men. He would later tell investigators that one of the men walked slowly toward the entrance of the dome building, while the other man ran off to the west of the building. Just five to eight minutes later, two state hospital employees noticed Frankie's car in the parking lot with the door open, but there were no signs of Frankie or anyone else around the car. Between 7.15 and 7.30, two corrections employees left the dome building and also noticed Frankie's car with the door open in the parking lot. At that point, they tried to page Frankie. Again, cell phones weren't a thing, but pagers were. All four employees told maintenance worker Larry Hill about what they saw and that Frankie didn't answer their pages and he didn't return to his car. Then the employees headed home. So Hill decided to look for Frankie, but he didn't find him. This was around 8.10. At that point, Hill notified Frankie's co-worker, Dave Colley, that no one had been able to find Frankie. Colley called the second-in-command, Dick Peterson, and the two searched the dome building. But they didn't search the north porch at that time. This was around 8.45. They found no sign of Frankie, and his car remained in the parking lot with the door open. At no point during any of these searches were police called. At 10.20, a witness reported seeing five to six men running away from the front of the dome building, but again, police weren't called. Hill, the building's maintenance worker, returned to the dome building at 11.45. He didn't see any sign of Frankie, but he did see Frankie's car still in the parking lot. On January 18, 1989, at 12.40 in the morning, Hospital security officer Stephen Rubens came across the body of Michael Frankie on the north porch near the north entrance of the dome building. Frankie's body was covered in bruises, abrasions, and other wounds. His cause of death was a stab wound to the heart. Despite there being no trace of blood within 100 feet of the car, police believed Frankie was stabbed at his car and dumped on the north porch. Frankie's watch and wallet were still on his body, but
but his briefcase was missing. The murder weapon wasn't found on either the north porch or near Frankie's car. And spoiler alert, the murder weapon hasn't been found to this day. According to the Unsolved Mysteries episode on this case, Frankie had a state-of-the-art car alarm system. But if you remember, none of the witnesses mentioned anything about hearing a car alarm going off, which is a pretty annoying sound that you'd probably remember. Because of this, police hypothesized that Frankie most likely walked to his car, unlocked it, and deactivated the alarm before being abducted by five or six men. Those men then brought Frankie back to the dome building where he was later found. In May 1989, nearly six months after Frankie's murder, police interviewed Frank Gable for the first time. Police had received a tip that Gable had information about the case from a man named Michael Kierens. Kierens claimed that Gable made a jailhouse confession to him while they were incarcerated together. Despite the initial theory that five or six men were involved in the abduction and murder of Frankie, once the police had Gable in their sights, their theory completely changed to fit the suspect, rather than the evidence. A man named Earl Childers claimed he saw Gable near the scene of the crime. A local teen runaway named Jody Swearingen would testify before a grand jury that she witnessed Frankie's murder and she would identify Gable as the perpetrator. Four other witnesses, I'm using air quotes around that term by the way, would also place Gable at or near the crime scene on the night of Frankie's murder. The grand jury, which was convened in July of 1989, indicted Gable on April 6th, 1990. He was charged with six counts of aggravated murder and one count of murder. Even though police and prosecutors thought they had their man, others weren't so sure. There was no physical or DNA evidence linking Gable to the crime. Also, if Gable's motive for the murder was a robbery gone wrong, why leave Frankie's wallet and watch behind? At the time of his arrest, Gable was known as a small-time meth dealer in the Salem area. Not exactly an upstanding citizen, but also not necessarily a murderer. In February 1991, Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode on this case, even though Gable had been arrested and was awaiting trial for Frankie's murder at the time. At Gable's trial, Jody Swearingen testified once again that she saw Gable murder Frankie. The prosecution didn't have the murder weapon, but the judge allowed them to introduce a knife that they had purchased that matched Frankie's wounds into evidence. The prosecution then had Gable's ex-wife testify that she gave him a knife similar to the one that the prosecution had purchased. So, with five or six witnesses providing testimony against Gable, and the knife evidence offered by the prosecution, the jury of course found Gable guilty of aggravated murder on June 27, 1990. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. As far as police and prosecutors were concerned, the case was closed. 
They convicted the man responsible for Frankie's murder, and everyone could move on. In August 1991, Gable was transferred to an Idaho prison for security reasons, likely the high-profile nature of the case. The investigation and trial of Frank Gable cost the state of Oregon $2 million. And yet, people still weren't sure that they could really close the case. In April 1994, the Oregon Court of Appeals upheld Gable's conviction. Meanwhile, several witnesses had recanted their testimony, especially after it came out that a lot of witness testimony was obtained through coercive interrogation tactics and polygraph exams. 20 years after the Court of Appeals upheld Gable's conviction, the Federal Public Defender's Office filed to reopen Gable's case. It took five long years, but Gable was released from prison in June 2019. During his appeal, Gable had the support of Frankie's brothers, Kevin and Patrick. They are both convinced of Gable's innocence and even started a GoFundMe page to help raise funds for Gable's defense. So if Gable didn't kill Frankie, who did? A few theories have been offered over the years, mostly surrounding a potential conspiracy or cover-up by those in positions of power in the Oregon government. There is evidence that leads credence to this conspiracy theory. Just before he was murdered, Frankie told his family that he had found evidence of corruption within the prison system that would implicate several top government officials. But no paperwork related to this investigation has ever been found. Although investigators did see 23 bags of shredded paper in Frankie's office after they began conducting their investigation. I should also note that a federal investigation was conducted in 1986, which resulted in the resignation of the prison superintendent and several corrections officers being fired, which is the reason Frankie had been brought in to clean house, so to speak. The FBI actually looked into a possible connection between corruption and drug smuggling at the Oregon State Penitentiary and Frankie's murder. At the time of Frankie's murder in January, of 1989, corrections officers and other staff members weren't searched as they entered the prison facility. Because of this, some COs became involved with smuggling drugs and other contraband into the prison. Nothing appears to have come from this federal investigation, though. Along with the assassination and conspiracy theories, a few names have popped up over the years as potential suspects or perpetrators. First, there was Tim Natavidad, a local Salem drug dealer. He was first offered as a potential suspect by none other than Jody Swearingen, the teen runaway who testified against Gable before the grand jury and at Gable's trial. Basically, she gave the same story as before, only she said that Natavidad was the one she saw murder Frankie. There were also rumors that Hoyt Cup, the former warden of the Oregon State Penitentiary, gave Natividad $20,000 to kill Frankie. Unfortunately, we'll never know if any of this is true. Natividad was killed two weeks after Frankie's murder, and Cup died of cancer in 1990. 
Another potential suspect was Scott McAllister. He was the assistant attorney general for the state of Oregon, but resigned shortly before Frankie was murdered. He was allegedly selling parole to inmates, which some people thought that Frankie might have found out about. But to my knowledge, there is no evidence to substantiate either claim. McAllister would go on to become the inspector general of the Utah Department of Corrections. The last potential suspect doesn't have a name. He is known only as Pinstripe Suit Man. A few witnesses saw this man on the night of the murder. According to one source, this man may have posed as a copy machine repairman in order to gain access to the dome building. One article I read said that the copy machine was taken apart but never put back together and there was no sign that any repairs had been made. No one else from the copy machine company came out to complete the repairs and there was no record of any service repair call in the copy machine company's records. It has been over 30 years and there are still no answers for Frankie's brothers, Kevin and Patrick. From what I can tell, police still seem to think Gable was the perpetrator and they haven't done any further investigating since he was released in 2019. This case has long gone cold and there's no telling whether it'll ever be solved. If you have any information about the murder of Michael Frankie, you can submit a tip on the Unsolved Mysteries page for this case. And be sure and let us know what you think about this case. You can email us at truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com or head over to our Facebook discussion group. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. You can also find our Facebook discussion group by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.